Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Today marks the 60th anniversary of the Orly plane crash. In 1962, it was then the world's deadliest airplane accident, killing 122 people, 106 of them were members of the Atlanta Arts Association. An outpouring of sympathy from across the country resulted in millions of dollars donated on behalf of the lives lost. And those donations led to creating the Memorial Arts Center, now known as the Woodruff Arts Center. Two of those aboard the plane were Betsy Bevington and Del Ricky, the grandmother and great-grandmother of award-winning Atlanta journalist Ricky Bevington. Coming up, Ricky joins us to reflect on the Orly tragedy and how she continues to honor her family's legacy. First, some historical background. WABE's Dave Barriswain created this brief recap about the event, which includes a first-hand account from Ricky Bevington's grandfather, Milton Bevington, who passed away in 2010. The crash shocked the world. It was not just one of the worst aviation disasters to date. It was the worst thing that ever happened to Milton Bevington. plane went up about six feet and came back down and bounced around and zigzagged and finally broke in half. The plane was leaving Orly Airfield in Paris on its way to New York. Bevington, who was 33 at the time, witnessed the crash. His wife and mother-in-law were on the plane. What followed from that was, uh, you know, a period of, of a few weeks is just a series of funerals. And it was a very difficult time for, for the city, and I think for everybody. And uh, Essentially, nothing happened in Atlanta for for a while. But you can just imagine what just sort of almost like a thunderbolt uh, this was for the city of Atlanta. Atlanta historian Cliff Kuhn. You know, you can't imagine what a devastating blow it was. Uh, Ivan Allen was the mayor. The uh, plane began to lose its undercarriage. It's spread out pretty much there, and there's some unusual situations that would be difficult to describe. And The vast majority of the passengers who died were members of the Atlanta Art Association on a tour, a museum tour of Europe. So instantly, the movers and shakers in Atlanta's art community died like that. One way, and then apparently both wings crumpled under the plane, and that was where I would say the explosion occurred. Milton Bevington wasn't on the plane that day because of a rule that he and his wife had established. Well, my wife, who was on the plane, uh, had a great fear of flying. And uh, she had an unwritten rule that we never flew on the same flight anywhere. And uh, so if we were going someplace, we'd take two different planes. After the crash, the outpouring of support came from all over the country and even the world. 
Within a short time, millions of dollars had been donated on behalf of the Atlanta Arts Association. That led to the construction of the Memorial Arts Center, which later became the Woodruff Arts Center. And here, outside, in front of Woodruff, in 1968, a gift from France, a bronze casting of a full-sized man, Auguste Rodin's The Shade, given in memory of those who died. Yeah, the head is bowed, the whole shoulders are bowed, and he's bowing to something. I suspect it's something immortal or something not of this earth. When thinking back about the crash today, Milton Bevington hangs on to one fond memory, something that happened just before the passengers boarded. They were all in the, the, the shops docking up on gifts to bring home to their family, and the, they, the plane was delayed about 30 minutes because they couldn't get them out, out of the shops. But I saw them all before they died. For what it's worth, <laughs> they, <laughs> they were having a great time. <laughs> The statue of the Shade stands next to a plaque with all of the names of those who died in Paris that day. The statue's back is to the Woodruff campus. His head tilts to the side as he looks out over Peachtree Street. That was WABE's David Barrisway with previously aired reflections on the Orly Aviation accident. Included in that audio were Milton Bevington, who passed away in 2010, and historian Cliff Kuhn, who died in 2015. Joining me now via Zoom is Milton and Betsy Bevington's granddaughter, Ricky Bevington. Ricky is an award-winning journalist, president of the World Affairs Council of Atlanta, and executive-in-residence at Georgia State University's Robinson College of Business. Ricky Bevington, welcome to City Lights. Lois, thank you for having me. And in the context of talking about Betsy and Dell, you reading my titles, I hope that they are proud of me. I have every, every reason to believe that they are smiling down. I read that you didn't grow up talking about the tragedy of your grandmother and great-grandmother's deaths. How did you learn about the Orly crash? It's hard to know when I first learned about it. And when we say we didn't talk about it, I think what, what we mean is it just was too painful. It just was. And I think anybody who's experienced really deep family trauma can relate to it not being a casual dinner conversation. I will say when I was about eight years old, my mother took my brother and I to France. And I remember her on the phone with the back in the day of travel agents. She said, we don't fly in or out of Orly because the travel agent, of course, there are two Paris airports. And I think that was the first time that I remember understanding the power of the Orly air crash that my mother was going to make sure that her children were never going to fly in or out of Orly. Mm. There's a documentary, The Day Atlanta Stood Still, about the tragedy. I understand you watched it with your grandfather. I first watched the documentary with my brother. As kids, we understood that the topic was off limits. And I think any child who understands that there's something parents don't want to talk about, well, it becomes incredibly interesting to the children, right? <clears throat> and watching the documentary was very painful to see my grandfather tear up. The documentary was made on the 40th anniversary and to think that he still couldn't talk about it without his voice cracking and tears in his eyes made me understand why the family in a way needed to protect him by not talking about it. I think around the time of my trip to France as an eight-year-old and my mother talking about how we're not flying in or out of Orly, 
I think I asked my father the one time I ever asked him about Betsy, his mom, he kind of deflected and he said, if you ever want to see Poppy cry, ask about Betsy. Poppy, of course, being my grandfather. And I think that was his way of saying, honey, you're about to make me cry. So he deflected to his father. Would you tell us about your great-grandmother, Del Ricky? Well, what I know of Del is that she, another family secret, she was a few years older than my great-grandfather, which at the time wasn't discussed that the woman was older than her husband. Can you imagine? <laughs> Can you imagine? I mean, this is just a different era. Yes. Dell was, you know, I can't remember where she was from. I know my great grandfather was from Pennsylvania because his sister had a farm called Apple Pie Farm that I enjoyed going to as a young child. And they lived in Milwaukee. They raised two daughters, including my grandmother in Milwaukee. He was very successful. And as I understand it, effectively did so well, pretty much mid point in his life that probably by his 50s he was able to move to Atlanta where Betsy his daughter lived and also invest in a beautiful property in Florida so they were retired that would have been Winter Park Florida and so Dell the photos that I see of her and her daughters and her husband they're often beach photos But the truth is, I really don't have anyone to ask. My father was nine years old when they died. So what could he tell me about them other than they were the matriarchs of the family? He spent all of his time with Betsy and Del. She was your namesake, Ricky. Yeah. And what do you know about her interests in the arts? Betsy, my grandmother, was... Uh, painter. She attended Wellesley. And I have one painting that remains of hers. There may be more, but nobody in the family has come forward with them. I would be surprised if there weren't more. She attended Wellesley and she met my grandfather very likely at a Wellesley Harvard mixer as undergrads. And she was just from a very early age, very, very creative. And I I know this because my father is extremely creative. He is a photographer in his retirement, but has always been passionate about photography. So what I know of Betsy's love of the arts, I often deduce from my father's love of the arts and my own sense of creativity as a journalist, which is a very creative profession. Ricky, Beyond your family, what was the impact of this devastating crash on Atlanta? Well, there's the typical story that people were devastated, that they held a lot of church services. and But I think the title of the documentary, The Day Atlanta Stood Still, really captures that this event took people's breath away much like Americans of a certain age can tell you exactly where they were when they learned that John F. Kennedy had been shot, Atlantans of that generation can tell you exactly where they were when they heard about that airplane crash. I've had people come up to me and just say, I was riding in the car and I heard it on the radio, or I was sitting down watching television. My mother, tells me that five children in her class lost parents. So the impact on Atlanta was extremely emotional and traumatic for a whole community of people who, as we know, got to work raising money to create the art center that the people who died had envisioned. Carrying on the family tradition, Ricky, you are also philanthropic and dedicated to public service in Atlanta. Would you talk about your work on behalf of our community? 
Well, I'd love to. You know, it really started when I went through the leadership development program for early career professionals lead Atlanta. And that's where we really learned how to be leaders in our personal and professional lives and civic leaders. I joined an art museum board. I have sat on the Dad's Garage board. That's an improv theater here in Atlanta. Oh, love Dad. Dad's is amazing, and it, it serves such a special community, people who really understand and appreciate improv. I sit on the board of the Atlanta Press Club and the Georgia Council for International Visitors, and I suppose that this maybe is right in line with what Betsy and Dell were doing and women of their age did, which was to support civic activities. Mm. People who have moved to Atlanta in recent decades may not even be aware of the Orly crash or its impact on the city. How does the Art Center continue to honor the memory of those lives lost? Every time the Woodruff Art Center brings joy to someone or opens their eyes to the power of art, musical art, performance art, children's education, or just staring at a painting on the wall, that is the vision that my grandmother and great-grandmother had for the city. I mean, it can bring me to tears thinking that this is what has come of an awful tragedy. And I can go visit my grandmother and great-grandmother. The shade, the Rodin statue stands on the lawn of the High Museum. And if you walk down the gravel path to enjoy it, this, I mean, priceless sculpture, a gift of the French government to the city of Atlanta, all the names of the victims are around it. And every time I go to the Woodruff or just have a little bit of extra time in Midtown, I just go sit with them and I talk to them. And I say, what would you think of all this? What would you think of Atlanta? What would you think of me? And I'm very grateful for all of the philanthropic efforts that have gone into the Woodruff Arts Center. And also the way the Woodruff has been able to create a broader artistic and creative community in Atlanta. Ricky, this horrific event occurred many years before you were born. Your grandfather passed away in 2010. And he was the last eyewitness of the crash. I so appreciate your willingness to talk about that fateful day decades later. I hope it hasn't been painful for you. You know, intergenerational family trauma is very real. And as we have more conversations about mental health, it's something that we could all afford to talk more about. And so I hope that for me, being able to confront the tragedy and talk about it in a way that's positive, I hope that that would bring some solace to my grandfather, who I'm sure sees a lot of Betsy in me, the woman that he was so incredibly in love with. He witnessed the crash, which explains even more why he was so emotional talking about it. So in many ways, when I talk about the Orly air crash or share how it has inspired me in my personal and professional life and my civic work in Atlanta, I'm doing it on behalf of Betsy and Dell and my grandfather, who I call Poppy, to bring some healing. Ricky Buffington, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure, Lois. Thanks so much. Ricky Bevington, president of the World Affairs Council of Atlanta and executive in residence at the Robinson College of Business at Georgia State University. She is also the granddaughter and great-granddaughter of Betsy Bevington and Del Ricky, two of those who were killed in the Orly plane crash. Coinciding with the 60th anniversary of the Orly tragedy, today is the Woodruff Art Center's ninth annual educator conference. Hala Modelmog, CEO of the Woodruff Art Center, 
says the conference was designed to enhance the teaching practices of Georgia's arts educators. We really understand and believe that providing arts education is as important as providing arts entertainment. We just simply want to show our appreciation to the educators in Georgia. And we remember that our work encompasses the passion, the legacy, and the mission of those who lost their lives at Orly. And we thank them for being the genesis of our existence. More information about the Woodruff Arts Center's Educator Conference, as well as the 60th anniversary of the Orly Aviation Accident, is on our website, wabe.org slash city lights. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Great to have you along. June is Pride Month, and to celebrate the LGBTQ plus community, let's listen back to our conversation about the documentary Jack and Yaya. The film looks at the loving friendship between Jack, a trans man, and Yaya, a trans woman. Last year, City Lights producer Summer Evans spoke via Zoom with Yaya and the film's creator and co-director, Mary Huey. Here, Yaya shares how she and Jack first met. So Jack and I first met through our shared fence. I vaguely remember, but I do remember her going up to the fence with my uncle and seeing him for the first time and just having this like weird instant connection. We were like instantly inseparable. And it's been that way pretty much ever since. Man, and now you guys are in your 30s. So this is yeah. 20 plus years later. What do you believe initially bonded you two to become best friends so quickly? I say it all the time. I've said it in the documentary. I, I feel like our souls, like they tell stories and and things of souls and, and having a soulmate that you'll find throughout your life or whatever. And, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a romantic soulmate. Like I feel like our souls just kind of knew that we were supposed to be with each other, I guess, to become who we were. I don't know, fate, whatever you want to call it. I feel like it was this magnetic force that just kept us there. We've had this connection before we knew what we were about to, the adventure we were about to go on. It just was there. Yeah. And Mary, how did you find out about Jack and Yaya? And when did you decide you should make a film about them? So Jack and I met when we had both just moved to Boston from separate places, but we were kind of in the same spot of not really knowing anybody in town. We had both just gotten our hearts broken. So we just ended up connecting through my, my Craigslist roommate. We ended up at a party together and we immediately were like, we're, we're going to have a lot of fun together. And we just kind of clicked right away, became best buds. And, you know, I think at some point, I can't remember what year it was, I went down for New Year's um, to Philadelphia when he was home visiting his family or the Philly area. And I met Yaya. I think Yaya actually picked me up from the train station. It was just kind of like a brief encounter, but it wasn't until, you know, many years later, I kind of started um, ruminating on this idea of there being something there, their, you know, their connection, their story. Um, I just kept hearing, you know, Jack would always tell me about what him and Yaya had been up to, all these amazing stories. 
you know, I was just home for Christmas one night and I think it was, I can't remember if it was 2016 or 2017. And I just talked to Jack on the phone and I'm sure he told me some crazy story about what him and Yaya had been doing. And I just wrote down Jack and Yaya documentary. You know, I was now dating my partner, Jen Bagley, who's the co-director and the director of photography for the film, you know, and she had kind of that film background. And I called Jen later that night and I was like, I think I've got this idea. And, you know, I have no film background. So I think she knew <laughs> kind of what I was getting us into. And she was like, oh yeah, we'll, we'll talk about it. And after a lot of conversations, we were like, all right, let's pursue a short film. And, and from there, we were just, we were off and just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Right. The whole premise of the documentary is about them coming into their own, a trans woman and a trans man. But the focal point is their friendship. Why did you want to focus on this connection and the bond that they had with one another in the documentary? I think if you see Jack and Yaya together, you get it. <laughs> you know, like there's just this charisma and this connection between the two of them that really is kind of unrivaled by any kind of bond that I've ever seen. And really also the group of people that surrounds them, friends, family, their community is also really special. It's very different than any feeling that I've ever had stepping into that community. Um, there's just so much love and acceptance and humor. And so we knew this had to be captured. I think also, you know, it's just a beautiful representation of how within the LGBTQ plus community, we, we create our own family. And it, you don't always have to be blood relatives to be family. So I think that's also a part of their story that I, I really love. So Yaya, before you came into your own as a trans woman, you started out in drag, which eventually grew to dressing in drag every day, even outside of performing. At what point did you look in the mirror and think, I want to dress this way and be this person every day, 24 hours a day? It kind of happened instantly. I, I used to, I played before with stuff I dabbled, you know, Halloween and everything. And that was just a holiday. That was an excuse. When I started to do it, like you played on Halloween and you ventured in, into things and you dabbled in your mom's closet or your aunts or your cousins or your sisters or someone's closet. Like I even went into Jack's mom's closet at two years old and I kind of always like found myself going, gravitating towards this aspect. And when I found drag and I realized that it could happen on a daily basis if, you know, I always found somewhere to perform or did anything I realized pretty much straight away the first night I did it in this weird shake and go wig that matched my natural hair color and I was like I could do this and then it was solidified when a trans woman got on stage and I at first was confused and I said why is that woman performing I thought it was for drag queens only and they were like well she's trans she's a drag queen too she that's who she is and I was like trans and then boom, I went home and looked it up. And I found this whole world of these beautiful trans women performing in drag. And I was shocked and kind of nervous. It was like, I stumbled onto myself on the internet. And I was like, this is me. I reached out to people that were in the community that were, you know, taking estrogen and doing those things. And I, I talked to them and I sought out the help I needed. And I found motherly connections within these trans women that pushed me into being who I am today. So both of your brothers, Justin and John, are gay. And in the film, John talks about his reaction to finding out that you're coming out as a trans woman. Can you just expand upon that reaction and what that was like for your brother to find this out? Yes. Yeah, so my brother, the middle one, is super protective and we're all super close he said to me the one night, he's like, I found what you, I, you're going to love this. I want to take you here. We went to this club bounce. It was in Westville. It was the only gay club in South Jersey, like especially near us at the time. I think there was one more in Atlantic City. We went and I saw them perform for the first time in the very next Thursday, because it was a competition every Thursday night at this club. I went the net very next Thursday and I performed and it was over from there. And my brother started to get nervous. And he had said to me, he's like, I don't want you to be one of those girls on the street. Cause that's all we knew. That's all that was told to us is that once you're trans, your family kicks you out and you have to sell your body to make a living and you're stuck on the street because that's really what happens to most trans women and people that are in this LGBT community, especially back then, 
when their families weren't as accepting because no one talked about it. No one educated anyone on it. And I looked at him and I said, well, you'll have to get over it because I am not going to do that. I'm not quitting my job and I work and they're going to have to keep me because I'll just then take them to court and I will pay for <laughs> everything and I will be fine. And to this day, regrets it. He was so mad when I talked about it. I was like, but John, it's, it's a, the point of this is that you had this feeling because that's all you were taught. And you, that, what you said to me didn't come from a hateful place or a hurtful place. It may have seemed that way at first because it, it shocked me. I didn't expect it at all, but it came from a place of fear. It came from, you know, the news saying another trans woman was murdered. And at that time too, we had the Craigslist murders with, where the trans women were being murdered right on off of Craigslist, right at that same, around the same time. So I said to him, I was like, we grew, you're my best friend and you're my biggest advocate and you fight for me. And I taught you that there's a different part of it because I knew that there was more to it than just what we were being told. And that's the biggest part of why I was so excited to do the documentary was that people hear and see certain things and they automatically assume that's it. That's all it is. There's no other, there's no other way around it. And there's more to it. There's more to us. There's, there's more to being authentic to yourself than what the other person thinks that means. Do you feel like there was a difference in the acceptance that maybe your brothers had when they came out as gay versus when you came out as a trans woman? Well, for me and John, we came out like multiple times. Like, like I came out as bisexual. That was literally my stepping stone to be able to see how my family would feel about me being gay. And none of them, they were like all shocked. Well, they acted shocked. My grandmom knew. And I know my mom knew. My mom swore that I told me. She said, I picked out your name. I thought you were going to be a girl. And my grandmom said the same thing. She's like, we all did. And I was like, well, surprise. You know, you know I am. I just kept coming out. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then Justin kind of hid it from us. So when he told me he was gay, he told me that. And he was living in Maryland at the time. And I got really pissed. I was mad. I was mad because I was genuinely terrified. I was like, I fought for you. You've never been hit. Like Justin was protected by me and John. Like my, anytime my dad wanted to yell at him or he was in trouble, Justin wasn't allowed to get hit. We could torture him and mess with him all he wanted, but my, no one could touch my little brother. Still to this day, no one can do that. So when he said he was gay and he's like, and I'm going on a date, I'm like, you don't even know the ins and outs of anything. I can't believe this. And, and he's like, I can't believe you're mad at me. I was like, I mean, I, I kind of thought that, but I didn't know. I just was hoping to have like a niece or a nephew or something. I pulled the mom thing. And then I was like, <laughs> and I was like, I mean, you can always adopt. I know because I'm going to have to, but I'm just scared for you. I don't want you to get beat up. I don't want anything to happen. He's like, okay, I won't go on random dates. I just left one on a, a houseboat. I was like, you went on a houseboat? What if he drove off to the sea? And I, <laughs> I was like, that's it. You're moving home. You're not, doing it. you're moving home. And like, I have to drive four hours just to save you. So I, it, it was it's funny because when I look back and I remember how my family reacted and I was like, I would never do that. The moment my baby did it, I lost my shit. And then it made me realize that's all it was the whole time is it's this fear from all of the stuff we see on TV, the gay bashings, the trans murders, everything in the portrayal of us, that's where it differed. But once my family knew that I was safe, that they raised a tough woman, that they didn't have to worry about me, even though I don't know what made them think they would, they kind of just let us be happy. I mean, I didn't have a problem with Jack's family. They accepted it years and years and years ago and did not care and were open to everything and loved me no matter what. I mean, my family loved me no matter what. They just gave me a, a little bit of shit in the beginning and that was it. Yeah. No, I, and that to me was so refreshing about this documentary was just seeing all this acceptance and love and kindness and support that you don't really hear about in mainstream media or on social media. You usually hear like what you were saying, like you're kicked out. Yeah. And this was just like a completely different perspective that I haven't seen or heard. Yeah. I mean, you got to understand too, like for me, for anyone coming out, and, and, and I mean, if you, if you know people that have, you know, like they don't understand it half the time anyway, we ourselves don't understand it. So it, sometimes it's, you got to put yourself in their shoes. Like you're, you're telling them this whole thing that they never even considered or thought about. And you're telling them this, and then you're expecting them to instantly accept you instantly understand every little detail. 
without any pause or any fear or any like stress towards it. And that's also not fair to do to your family. I mean, I don't think family should kick them out or, or tell them no, or don't let them be themselves. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying if your family makes a mistake, if they mess up your pronouns, if they mess up anything in the very beginning, give them a break, talk to them, be like, it's all right. Like, let them know, be like, okay, we got to work on that. Like, that's what I would always say. My, even my little cousin, Sarah, she would correct my grandma really early like really, really early. And I, it, my heart melted every single time. And it was also really funny because here's the seven-year-old going, she, my mom, she, and my grandmom was like, I know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But I never once got mad about it. And I think people need to realize it's like now, like if, if my grandma was alive and she did it, I'd be like, oh, come on lady, let's go get it together. Like I would mess with her. Like you kind of can judge if they're trying to wrong you or if they're genuinely just like, in the midst of a conversation and forget and mess up and you just decide which one is which and go with it and I feel like the world needs to know that that can happen yeah yeah it's just noticing is someone trying to put forth the effort or have they gave up and they're just like I'm gonna do what I want and that makes all the difference and I don't care what anybody says you know the difference you know the difference it tells you your gut tells you if you choose to ignore it and just be a jerk or just be like whatever about it, 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 that's your choice, but you know, you know, when someone's coming for you and when they're not, and you know, when it's coming from a place of love or just literally there's times where I've referring to Jack, I've said she as an accident and like, I'm talking too fast or telling a story too fast and boom, it comes out and I'm like, Oh, what am I doing? And that's me. I'm, it's coming from me. And you know, I've never seen him as a girl. It's just some weird thing. My brain's just like, Ooh, gotcha. And like, are you paying attention? Gotcha. You know, you just learn to grow from that. In the film, you talk about feeling the need to like pound makeup into your face, no matter where you went, even if it was just to the kitchen to cook. I'm doing that right now as we speak. (laughs) There are a lot of similarities in the challenges that you and Jack both face when going out into the world, but what would you say are the differences? I feel like not that trans men don't have such a, I don't want to downplay any of the difficulties that trans men go through at all when I say this. So I don't want it to be taken that way, but it I'm sure to someone it's going to be offensive, but with trans women, if we have the slightest bit of masculinity to our face or anything, like I panic going into the restroom thinking like someone's going to be worried and scared and say something. And I mean, not that Jack had to do the same thing. He went through something similar with restrooms, but I feel like for trans women, we're stared at and gawked at. I've walked into a room and people have looked at me and not thought anything. And then there's a day where I run out of the house to do something before I get to shower and shave and do all the things I need to do to feel more feminine. And I've been staring at from the moment I walked around the corner, you know, and got to, and people just like kind of looking. And I've, I've had people, even when I was working at Walmart for a little bit, and I had this couple that came into the restaurant two days before and left me no tip and were rude the entire time. And then so happens that they came down my line the very next day in Walmart, but started putting their stuff on the belt, saw me and took their stuff off the belt. And I'm not talking about like one or two things. I'm talking about all of their things. Mind you, it was a Sunday of the first of the month. I'll never forget it. And we were busy and they took all their stuff off just to go away. And I feel like had my name been changed at that time and I, it didn't say Christopher on my receipt, and I had facial feminization and everything, I wouldn't have encountered that situation at all. A trans man, there's short men, there's tall men, there's like a trans man, if the testosterone takes properly, if they choose to go that route and they go to the more, like they do that and they start to grow facial hair things, I feel like it's almost looked past a little bit because people don't think, oh, that could be a woman. They, as soon as they see facial hair, that's a man. They, They like shut it all off. I know not every trans person wants to transition. Every trans per- not every trans person chooses to take testosterone or, or estrogen. But for those that are doing that, you know what I mean? It's just... Yeah. It, for you, like it's like you have to present feminine to the utmost degree. Yes. All my stuttering, that's exactly what I was trying to get out. I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings or say anything that seems offensive. And I can feel Jack pinching me from Boston, just in case. And I'm like... <laughs> treading lightly here because I'm like, it, there is a fine line. And, and I know that there's a lot of gender fluid people that don't feel the need to be that way. And they're persecuted. And I legitimately give so much praise to them 
Because it's like, I would love to be able to go out and just not give a single flying, you know what, go about my business and live my life. Mm -hmm. So Mary, throughout the documentary, you interweave some old footage as well as showing like today and the gathering that they have in the summertime. What was that process like going through all of their childhood footage and trying to figure out where you wanted to plug it in into the documentary? I mean, first of all, it was just so incredible that we were able to access that footage. And I have to really give a shout out to Jack's mom, Joanne, who just really kindly shared this precious home videos with us. She just sent us a DVD and said, look through it all. So we were able to just comb through the hours of footage um, and kind of try and pick out the scenes that we felt like really exemplified, you know, the, the bond between Jack and Yaya and just the general atmosphere at home. It was so fun to be able to look back on those videos and just see how much Jack and Yaya are exactly the same people they were at, you know, six and seven as they are now. Yeah. I thought it was very sweet when Jack is opening his presents at Christmas and he gets a doll. He was probably, what, eight, nine years old. And he's like, oh, this will be perfect for Yaya. (laughs) You know, and it just kind of shows that they already knew who each other was. And I feel like Jack and Yaya when we were talking with them, told us about that video. And this was before we'd gotten hands up in the footage. And we were like, okay, I mean, I'm sure it can't be that on the nose. It can't be that perfect. And then we watched it and we were like, oh my gosh. You know, he didn't skip a beat too. He opens up that Barbie head and he's like, oh, she's going to love this. Moves on looking for his Urkel doll or whatever it was that he really wanted a basketball jersey. So it was just so amazing. And you're like, yep, they knew right from the beginning. So that that was just an incredible moment. It's one of my favorite moments too. Mm Mm-hmm. Lastly, Yaya, I would just like to ask you, what advice would you give to people who are still hesitant to come out as a trans man or trans woman? I try to help people as much with this as I can, because I I do get a lot of questions. I get a lot of messages on Instagram and I tell them all the time, what does your gut say? What, what are you feeling? There's a part of it where it's like each person is, each transition is like a thumbprint. It's different. It's not the same. Not all of them are going to be easy. Not all of them are going to be extremely difficult, but they're all different. And I say, you know, this is what helped me. And I tell them, if you have great friends and people that you can trust that you know for sure are going to stick by your side, go for it. That was Yaya, one of the stars of Mary Huey's documentary, Jack and Yaya. The film is available to stream on Amazon Prime, and more information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we'll hear about an online art exhibition that explores how bicycle design can affect the way we interact with our city. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Today is the United Nations International Bicycle Day. And in a world transformed by the COVID-19 pandemic, our relationships with bicycles have also gone through transformation. Last year, MODA, the Museum of Design Atlanta's exhibition, Bike to the Future, explored how bicycle design affects transportation infrastructure and the way we interact with our cities. The exhibit is still available to view on MODA's website. And when I spoke with Laura Flusch, the executive director of MODA last March, she explained why the museum chose to highlight the design of alternative transportation forms. The exhibition showcases some bikes that are meant to help us shift from car-centered cultures because of concerns about climate change, or maybe we're just tired of being in the car sometimes. 
It also looks at the fact that in some cities, it's easier to get around by bike than car, but we need to carry stuff. So we need cargo bikes. We need solutions for carrying our groceries or our kids or whatever we're, we're porting around. Something that's really taken off electric bicycles that let us go farther and move faster and manage hills in a city like Atlanta better. And then it looks at bikes that are made with interesting materials or technologies like 3D printing, or there's one bike that is entirely recycled from Nespresso capsules, <laughs> if you can believe it. And there's a bamboo tandem bike. Oh my. Would you talk about Baston Lay sandwich bike design? Sure. The sandwich bike is a bike that you order and it comes to you in a box. And so the pieces are there. They are made of wood and it is yours to assemble. So they are CNC cut and you can put them together. So it's made out of a sustainable material and is a kind of DIY project. What can you tell us about the Van Gogh bike path in the Netherlands? Yeah, so another interesting aspect of the exhibition is that it looks at bike infrastructure as it is expanding across the globe and here in our city. And one of the most beautiful examples of bike infrastructure in the exhibition is the Van Gogh Bicycle Path, which was designed by a Dutch architect and artist whose name is Dan Rosengard. He works out of Rotterdam, but the path itself is in Eindhoven, and it was created as part of the 125th anniversary of the death of Van Gogh. Van Gogh lived in Eindhoven for a few years, and the city appears as a backdrop in his painting. So what Dan Rosegard did was to create a bike path, it's a little over a half a mile long, that uses the background from Van Gogh's well-known painting, Starry Night, as a pattern. And so he embedded the bike path with stones that absorb sunlight during the day and then are luminescent and glowing at night in the pattern from Starry Night. It's, it's really beautiful. Wow. I was hoping you'd describe some of the innovative bike accessories on display. You know, the more we move around by bicycle, the more we often want to adapt our bicycles to meet our specific needs. So there are a variety of accessories on, on view. They range from magnetic LED lights that you can put anywhere on your bike to improve your visibility. Um, and then you can take them off and put them in your pocket at the end of your ride so no one steals them. There are other lights that can be screwed into the end of your handlebar and they work as turn signals to make you more visible. There's um, a helmet that can be flattened so that it's very easy to slip into your backpack or your bag during the day. It doesn't have to just sit on your desk and look like you put your bike helmet on your desk. And then various kinds of seats and bags and panniers for attaching to your bike in order to be able to better carry things. Last year, the BBC published The Great Bicycle Boom, a lengthy article about the dramatic increase in bicycle sales and the surge in exercise. Do you think the bicycling craze will continue? I think it will. We've had a very long time to get used to different ways of being now. And you're right, bicycling has boomed in this time. So it's hard for me to imagine we'll all just want to jump right back in our cars and put the bikes back in the garage. I also think we have generations of young people who are very passionate about climate change and see alternative transportation as a good way to make a difference on a personal level. And then there's the issue of transportation mobility or mobility justice. Bicycles are cheaper. We can take them more places if we have the infrastructure to do so. That will be part of why bicycles will continue to flourish. And I know that in Atlanta, we're making big strides in that way. In September 2019, the mayor's office announced a $5 million plan to make Atlanta streets safer for everyone, but especially for pedestrians and cyclists and those on other mobility devices. And so there are local projects underway to make our city more bikeable 
we've seen a huge rise in biking in Atlanta. It's hard for me to imagine that that would not continue. Mode is offering a range of events demonstrating the power of design to imagine and create a better world. That's called Design for Justice. Why did you create this program? For us, Lois, it goes back to the idea of design as an agent of change and designers as people whose charge in life is to help us navigate the now and be ready for the future. Designers are uniquely poised to help us take on those big issues and making a just and equitable world is one of the biggest. We have used design in the past also to design inequities into our world. And so using the same tool to remove those inequities is important as well and to understand the difference and how we can do better. Laura Flusch, the executive director of the Museum of Design Atlanta, Moda. More information about viewing the virtual Bike to the Future exhibition is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Monday at 11 a.m., Fanny, the music and life of Fanny Lou Hamer, is coming to Kenny Leon's True Colors Theater. We'll talk with playwright Cheryl West and director Joy Vandervoort Cobb. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you will find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. Our theme music is the first time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band, courtesy of Hot Shoe Records. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. We'd love for you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.